Welcome to the Living Permaculture Show on KDNK.org. We have a special guest today, Mark Kraftcheck, who's written a, a, a recent book on coppice agroforestry. Mark, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, Jerome. It's great to join you. Great. Um, you were uh, an intern here in like 2001 or something like that for a year, and I think you came back to help us write some reports and some uh, consulting stuff. Um, and this was a, the first trip on a long journey of you learning about agroforestry and permaculture. And you probably did, um, you know, 15 to 20 different internships and site visits, um, gathering the information for this book uh, all over the world, actually. So and you want to talk a little bit about your uh, your experience here, and then uh, where that branched off, and um, where you went, and uh, you were interested earlier on to do a book on agroforestry. Then is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it took a few years before um, the vision for a book emerged, and um, you know, it was certainly a matter of actually getting some real experience under my belt before I, you know, had any vision or comfort level in that, and so maybe. Um, to, to step back to around that time, 2001, um, I ended up graduating college just a few months prior, and I'd been fortunate I learned about permaculture during my undergraduate studies and was able to start to explore what that looks like and what it means in a few different contexts while I was in school, but I was really itching for practical experience. I grew up in suburban Milwaukee and um, had a very safe and healthy upbringing, but really hadn't built a strong connection to the landscape and, and had very few practical skills that I could draw on to start to manifest the, um, the life that I had started to dream about. And so I happened to find Crimpy and you on uh, the internet, and I, I reached out, and sure enough, you took interns. And so I think I came out there maybe in November of, of 2001, and I think that time I probably spent three or four months there, and then I ended up coming back a few different times um, over the last 20 years. And, um, you know, it's been great just to, to catch up and keep up and see the evolution of your landscape and, and uh, you know, continue to benefit from your deep experience and, and knowledge and mentorship. So some of the things I left particularly inspired by at Crimpy um, was just the, the kind of the long-term vision and the, the value of persistent hard work that's gone into just, you know, carving out uh, a really beautiful and productive niche in a very challenging um, environment. And um, a lot of the resourcefulness that I saw just in how you were able to make use of um, waste streams and, and really think strategically about how, um, you know, always leveraging um, time and energy resources. Anytime you made a trip down to the valley trying to think about you know, what you could do to make sure that return trip was valuable. Um, and then and then getting some of the nuts and bolts, it was really my first introduction to um, some of the, you know, the science and art of forest gardening, and um, as well as some of the horticultural skills you bring from the Heritage Fruit Tree Project to the nursery and, you know, the passive solar greenhouses and such. So, you know, Crimpy definitely um, helped just give me 
a lens into a beautiful way of living in reciprocity with a place. And uh, it's something that I'll carry, continue to carry with me throughout my life. Um, and maybe I'll just spend a couple more minutes giving a little bit more background leading up to the book. Um, was, you know, my, the time I spent at Crimpy then became sort of this stepping stone for some other um, internships and work trade apprenticeship type experiences. Um, and so it gave me an opportunity, you know, having the ability to, to do this for a few years um, to start to see permaculture applied in different climates and contexts and scales. Um, and along that journey, I, um, I came across Ben Law's book, The Woodland Way, and I think it had just come out in 2001 or 2002. And I was really captivated by just the narrative he crafts in terms of the, the partnership between him and place and the, the nature of, you know, his livelihood along with, you know, the management of the, the woodlands he was stewarding there. And I happened to reach out and send him a, a letter and asked if he took apprentices. And so I think it was the fall of 2002, um, I ended up heading over to England and I spent about seven months working with Ben Law in his uh, West Sussex stand of sweet chestnut. And so I got to really get my hands dirty and, you know, work in the woods where we were, you know, actually uh, coppicing um, some 18 to 20 year old chestnut stems. And then during the warmer months, learning how we add value to those materials. And, yeah. and that just, you know, added another layer to my my um, knowledge and experience that's kind of persisted. Yeah, go ahead. Let's give... Uh our audience a, a definition of coppice. I mean, in in Perfect. In, in, um, in the context of agroforestry, and that's what you learned over over there in England. And then you you also learned how to make chairs out of the coppice material and other furniture and stuff. So, talk a little bit about the, yeah. the definition. Yeah. So um, on the the little blurb on the back of my book uses uh, a phrase "cut and come again forestry," and I think that's a really good way of kind of distilling it down to the essence. Um, coppicing basically is the intentional act of cutting a tree all the way to the base, basically, um, knowing fully that it will re-sprout after it's been cut. And so it's this intentional cyclical harvest of trees and shrubs for smaller diameter materials from the stump. And we've all seen this happen. For some of us, it may have been because we tried to kill a tree because we thought we cut it and killed it, and then it ended up sprouting back. But most deciduous species, and technically I should say most broadleaf species, most species that are not conifers will sprout when you cut them. Um, There's little caveats here and there that maybe it's not worth getting into too much, but um, as trees get older, their ability to sprout starts to diminish, and there's there's a few exceptions. But again, most broadleaf species will sprout when you cut them. And so when we do that, with the intention of then harvesting those materials for different purposes, that's what coppicing is. And coppicing really was the foundation of um, prehistoric and, you know, early industrial economies, like essentially up until the, the development of rail transport that made coal um, practical as the in main industrial fuel. Coppicing was the mainstay of European forestry because it was a human scale um, practice. The materials they harvested were smaller in diameter and easier to transport, easier to process, um, easier to fell with, you know, hand tools. And um, so we see legacy and tradition of coppicing 
basically on every continent that's inhabited um, because it just really worked well with the tools and the technology of the people um, historically. And it's only that it, in you know the last 100 or 150 years that it started to diminish in its, in its popularity. That's, that's a little nutshell of what coppicing is all about, is that kind of cut-and-come-again approach to forestry for, for products that could range from craft materials to construction products to fuel wood being a big one, charcoal historically being um, also really important to fodder for livestock. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of opportunities. Especially uh, you know, livestock coppicing, and that's kind of what we do a lot of here still with Siberian pea shrub and comfrey and, and mm-hmm. any, any prunings we have go, go to the animals, to the rabbits, and they, um, they devour that, and uh, it, it, it cuts back on the, on the hay we have to feed them. And we have a whole series of different foods that um, cycle through the rabbits. Uh, uh, you know, we can do comfrey. We can do spent grain from the brewery. We can do chop and drop. Um, of of uh, Siberian pea shrub and any other nitrogen fixing tree. Russian olive is one of their favorites. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just uh, we have a we have three different uh, cut and carry rabbit uh, compounds, and then they have a treehouse over that uh, over that rabbit hutch where the uh, large uh, Russian olives shade that area, and then drop seeds down. And I was just sitting up there in the treehouse and. My neighbor came over uh, to the north, and John, and he's a helicopter helicopter pilot, and he just got off duty in Oregon. And uh, we were just sitting there watching all the different bird species that were eating the Russian olive seeds while we were sitting above the rabbits mm-hmm. under the shade mm-hmm. of the of the um, uh, agroforestry Russian olive that gets coppiced for the. So it's like you know, there's so many nuances of. Of uh, it's not just cutting a tree, but you can you can weave in all these other uses and and um, you know livelihoods and um, yields out of out of coppice as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, um, the the also the experience you also picked up making furniture while you were over there, and you were doing chairs, wicker chairs, and. Uh, uh, bows could also be uh, another good you know, you know, livelihood to make bows out of coppice material as well. Yeah, absolutely. I actually was just recently in touch with a man in southern Missouri who said for the last 25 years he's been growing Osage orange, which is one of the more preferred species for bow making. And um, he was telling me how uh, Os- Osage is kind of naturally um, somewhat irregular in its growth form. And he's found coppicing to be a really potent tool in helping him um, select for and and kind of prune towards the straightest possible stems. Um, and that actual like bow making bolts, sections of log harvested for making bows is is actually a very lucrative product um, because it can be hard to find. And people that would like to make bows with Osage have. Um, you know, real appreciation for quality materials, and so uh, that's definitely that's definitely a, a, a potential coppice product for sure. Yeah, and then uh, you know we could take this all the way to built boat building materials. Um, I mean, I think uh, there's a resurgence now of, of people building wooden boats, and 
you know, we don't have enough boat building material uh, in, in the United States or in all over the world. I mean, there's a scarcity of hardwoods that are suitable for boat building. So in an agroforestry yeah. design, you could put 10 or 5% of the uh, space just for long-term hardwood boat building material or um, cabinet material. Any, you know, so you could really design a, a property. And I noticed in one of in one of your sections in the book, you um, you actually have a design uh, company where you go around and uh, look at properties and look at the best soils aspects for the different tree plantings and um, use GSI and uh, mapping uh, and drones and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that that uh, that process that you do? And I've been kind of sure. looking at that as, and my property as well. Yeah, well, and I mean, to a degree that I learned some of these skills just working with you um, over the years. And then, like we all do over time, we tend to draw from... Um, you know, other practitioners, other ways of doing things and start to develop sort of our own take on how we, um, you know, we practice our, uh, our, our craft and mine's still evolving for sure. As some of this you know, GIS technology is becoming increasingly um, user-friendly and a little less specialized. So I often find for a lot of my clients these days, I'm, I'm doing more consulting projects and then coaching them through their own design, which I find to be really rewarding in a couple of ways. One is that ultimately they're the ones that are going to be doing the implementation and maintenance over time. So making sure they really understand the design is, is pretty crucial, but also um, it kind of takes some of that strain off me to, to make decisions for them. It's like I, I can help them think through things, but the decision's ultimately something that's theirs. And um, so the way I learned to approach design is just through really deep um, and, and as, as prolonged as possible uh, site analysis. And uh, I learned to kind of approach that using yeoman scale of permanence, which is just a continuum of characteristics of landscapes based on the things that are most permanent or, or most would take the most energy to change and those things that are most readily changed. And so learn to just spend as much time as practical um, trying to understand the site. And there's never enough time to do that. Um, but, you know, often, especially where I am, um, like at uh, several of the local uh, state governments have these very user-friendly GIS interfaces that you can access just free as a, uh, you know, as an individual, and you can turn on and off a bunch of different data layers. So you can see often very detailed topography up to, you know, one or two foot contour data. Uh, you can look at, you know, slope maps that show you where the steepest and flattest sections are. If not on the state websites, you can visit the USDA's web soil survey and figure out where different mapped soil types are on a property and find out some of their um, benefits and um, restrictive characteristics and uh, there's a number of other bits of information that I find really valuable to draw from including measuring tools and things like that so you know the game has changed a lot from when I first started to get into this and I'm sure from when you first started to delve into design because 
you can access all this stuff remotely before you even go on site. Right. And, you know, I find just having the ability to do that from above makes me so much more informed when I actually land on the property. Yeah, we do something that uh, is unique. Uh, Kareen Arby is one of our lead instructors for our PDC, and we do a two-day design charrette uh, practicum where we go to a property and then we do all of the mapping and do a base map, and then we... Uh, we, we convene about 20 people and we give them the basic permaculture design strategies and uh, then we, as a group, design uh, over two days um, mm-hmm. different aspects and different livelihoods onto a piece of property. We just did a really yeah. successful one over in Cattle Creek and we're doing one up on the front range and into this month and we did one in Montana a few years ago and I mean, you know, we have, you know, there's all the skills that are out there. Uh, there are mapping, there's the, the, the soils have already been mapped. And just making observations on my site, um, above my house, um, I have a strip of clay that runs, uh, uh, you know, about an acre above my house, down uh, through a ravine, over the, my, the ridge where I have my house and my forest garden, and then down to the spring. And then back up, it goes back into parent material. So there's mostly just uh, shale, not shale, but a red sandstone on, on the whole, most of Basalt Mountain. But there are little deposits of clay, and I just happen to have one of those. And so I, when I've been doing my swaling up there, I've noticed that I've been able to grow a huge amount of biomass. Um, and some mm-hmm. of the trees are now ready to coppice. And I, I do a lot of cut and carry of of hay and thistle and um, comfrey uh, for my animals. Um, and then just down below that ridge uh, on the southern exposure, uh, it, with climate change, um, all the pinions are dying. About half the pinions mm. are dead on the, on the south facing. And this is happening all over the valley where they're, um, even up at Root Eye, I was sailing yesterday, and if you look on the north, the north side of Rudive, there are sections of dead beetle kill. Uh, and so, you know, we have this whole issue of, of climate change and drought that uh, are affecting our forests. And uh, it's really unfortunate that the Forest Service uh, takes all of the wrong uh, practices um, in response to this. I know they were uh, up above Rudive, there was a section that they were going to... Um, and they may still do this, uh, a beetle kill, or maybe it was some stuff that was, yeah, I think it was beetle kill. They were going to c- cut it and chip it and then truck the chips down to rifle along the roaring fork, around the frying pan, and it'd be 40 trucks mm. a year, or 40 trucks a day, yeah. uh, when that, that biomass should stay there on the forest. Mm-hmm. And sure. Uh, so you know they are they're, they're robbing pay, Peter to pay Paul, and then totally yeah. ruining the ecology of of the, of the drainage. Um, basalt uses uh, the, the frying pan. You know they they derive a lot of their income from uh, the the fishing, the gold trout fishing on that, and I can't imagine forty trucks a day driving up and down that frying pan drainage. When people are trying to get out of their cars and get onto the river, and then um, just the neighborhood would be totally overwhelmed. They were supposed to start that this fall, and I guess they 
um, something happened and they didn't start doing that. But that's that's kind of where you know forestry is that they don't look at the at this you know, these niches of coppicing and uh, chop and drop and um, and silviculture, which is adding animals into the landscape. And I think that's a that's a big um, you know void here that we could. Uh, Correct. If we would start adding more mm-hmm. animals into uh, into our you know, into our, our forest systems, not not the way they do it yeah. here with leases, but taking pastures and planting um, appropriate uh, chop and drop and integrating those. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the potential for that would be? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was thinking about that given our earlier conversation a bit. Like, what's the relevance of some of these practices to to growers in your region. And, um, you know, one of the first things that pops into my head as a real value in just about any climate, but especially one that gets so much sun as yours, is having shade for animals. Um, just because animal perform- animal performance and overall health is just much better when they're not out in, like, beating hot sun. Um, and similarly, in, um, in places, I'm a little less familiar with the ecology of, of your pastures out there. But um, where I am, we tend to have more cool season grasses dominate our landscape. And um, once we get into the kind of peak summer, because of the hot temperatures and just, you know, kind of intensity of the sunlight, they tend to really slow down in terms of their regrowth. And this perhaps is somewhat similar in, in the Colorado area. Um, so actually, despite some decline in productivity because of shading during the cool months, there's actually overall increased productivity, especially during the summer, um, because of some shade. So I think just you know having trees in fields that provide animals and and herbaceous forage with a little bit of respite from the sun is really valuable. And that's just like a baseline foundation. Because then on top of it, it's like, well, what are all the other things that those trees can be providing in the meantime? So you know, at the very least it's the opportunity just to browse on the foliage when they're accessible. So you're just, in some cases, perhaps kind of turning the animals loose so that they get to kind of just chew, nibble on or, or consume um, the foliage on, on the plant. Um, I didn't mention this earlier, but we, when I defined coppicing, you know, there's, there's a few other related practices, one of which is called pollarding or pollarding. And the idea is instead of managing sprouts on the tree or shrub by cutting it to the ground, you're actually preserving more of a tree-like architecture, and you are um, creating these points of regrowth out on the branches. And so in some cases, like you'll see a tree just kind of lopped off at maybe six or eight feet, and that becomes this bowl where you get a bunch of new sprouts emerge from. That's one example of pollarding, but... If people have spent any time in Europe, you've likely seen um, the, the pollarded trees often in cities um, that are part of the cultural landscape. And so that's one way that you can graze animals in the understory and still be growing both shade and or fodder for animals. Um, and, you know, historically, the other purpose of pollarded trees was often to provide extra fuel wood. And so, you know, every 10 or 15 years, they'd be cutting the the maturing sprouts off of the, the um, branches of these pollarded trees to harvest for fuel wood. So I would throw that in as another product of coppiced wood. Um, there's all sorts of opportunities for creativity as far as craft materials go. 
Um, I'm also thinking just in terms of like riparian zones, being able to kind of couple coppicing with fodder production along with just like bank stabilization and shading. So there's, there's a number of directions we could go, but I see, you know, yeah, the, I think, uh, the reality is that it needs to respond to the landowner needs and goals. And so ideally we're kind of coupling that with what specific functions are they looking for as well. Yeah, I'm looking when I drive in on the back road to Carbondale to come to the studio and all the ranches, uh, small ranches uh, along the River Roaring Fork, um, they, um, they, you know, they could start with uh, tree plantings around the perimeter so that they could still... Yep. You know, hay their stuff, but then they could start expanding from the perimeter. And there's several. You know, there's the Coffin Ranch could uh, might be interested in you know some of these practices because they have some funding to do some you know unique design at this point or looking for uh, some ideas. Uh, and I would I would say that and, and again now they also run goats uh, along the. Uh, the trail now, um, as as a result of uh, what I started 25 years ago, bringing uh, bringing the first goats in to control weeds, um, they've done a pretty good job yeah. with that, and uh, people love the idea. And I just got uh, some DVDs of my my video I did on natural weed control. So if anybody wants a DVD, oh, nice. I can get that. Um, I we're, I'm going to just uh, drop back here and talk a little bit about uh, our upcoming meeting. This. This show will be airing about 4 o'clock on Monday, and on Monday at 6 o'clock, I will have uh, my third uh, uh, meeting. Uh, this will be the second meeting with the county commissioners and the planning department from Eagle County to uh, either approve or disapprove or continue my my special use permit and my ADU, uh, which is like a two-year process that has pretty much bankrupted me. Uh, and put me out of partial, put me out of business, uh, teaching permaculture on my site. So all of the things that we've been talking about and all the people who've come through my site, like you, uh, will no longer be able to uh, access the information on on Central Rocky Mountain permaculture uh, Mm. if we don't get this special use permit. So we'd love to have... uh, If you're driving home and listening to this program, you could swing into the Eagle County courthouse and um and give us some support so um what's your what is your kind of uh uh goal for now that the book is out um uh what is your goal to um uh to make get this information out to to more people yeah well um my i've i've already been really pleased with the response that i've gotten so far um it's i know that there's been a lot of interest in this theme, in this project, I didn't mention it um, earlier, but this um, is actually something that I started with Dave Jackie, um, who folks may be familiar with as the lead author of the Edible Forest Gardens books. He's a friend and colleague in Massachusetts. And uh, we started this back in the winter of 2010. So this is a very long-winded project, and uh, that's why I'm especially thrilled it's finally come out um, close to you know, 11 and a half years later. Um, okay. So there were a lot of people that had been waiting okay. for it. Yeah. And yeah. I think we're going to have to, to uh, cut this off. And I think we'll have you back uh, yeah. another time to do a part two on this. So uh, uh, Great. Thanks, thanks a lot. Well, for... if anyone's interested in buying the book, I have it for sale on my website at valleyclayplain.com. C 
C-L-A-Y-P-L-A-I-N, valleyclayplain.com. And thank you so much, Jerome. I appreciate it. Great. So thanks a lot for coming on, and um, I hope to see you at the meeting on Monday at 6 o'clock. Bye. The grandson, I'll tell you.